right, good evening. Glad to see you all here. And before I forget, I just want to say that um, we had a showed a trailer on Sunday morning for the American Gospel movie that we're going to play um, Friday night here at the church. So hopefully you guys will come join us. It's a really great film, um, beautiful portrayal of the gospel, the true gospel, and but also warning us about uh, the false gospel that we here in America tend to send around the world as well. So it's very thought-provoking and um, uh, eye-opening and encouraging at the same time. Um, uh, definitely a pretty good warning for us uh, to be looking out for false teaching. So we said 6 o'clock. Yeah, 6 o'clock here at the church. And we'll, what we're going to do is we're going to play about half of it, um, which would be about an hour and 10 minutes or so. And then we'll go in, have some refreshments, and sit in the fellowship hall, visit for a little bit, answer questions if there's questions about it, talk about some things we saw, maybe half hour-ish or so, and then we'll come back in and finish the last half of it. So uh, it should be a good time. So I encourage you guys to come. Tell your friends. All right. Titus chapter 3. Tonight we will finish up our study in the book of Titus. Um, it's this last portion of chapter 3 uh, in Paul's letter to Titus, the elder on the island of Crete, uh, who Paul has um, left there and tasked with putting elders in place in all the churches. Um, and again, this will be the end of our study in Titus because there's only three chapters. I uh, can't go beyond that in Titus <laughs> unless I invented a chapter 4, and I'm not going to do that. So um, last week we focused mainly on verses 8 and 9 and Paul's return to the topic of false teachers and the things they're peddling, uh, like foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. He, he named those in particular. And remember that Paul's warning to the church was that, that they're to avoid such things. Avoid those things. Turn from them. Uh, and the reason being that to be caught up in those activities is to be devoted to the wrong things. We don't want to be devoted to the wrong things. The Christian, Paul says, is to be devoted to what? If you remember from last week. Good works, right? Devoted to good works. Those things that are, he says, excellent and profitable for people. Not the other practices, which are unprofitable, he said, and worthless. And these were the pitfalls that the Christians on Crete had to watch out for. But there are still pitfalls that we have to watch out for today as well. The global church today is no less apt to fall into these pits of deception. Paul says to be devoted to good works instead. And then before his final closing words of encouragement and instruction to Titus, he addresses one more type of person. Uh, the person who stirs up division uh, is Paul's focus in the text we'll look at tonight. And once we've dealt with that in verses 10 and 11, we'll let Paul close out the letter, verses 12 through 15. So let's read together just verses 10 and 11 in chapter 3, and uh, that'll get us started for tonight, and then we'll pray. Verse 10, chapter 3. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. All right, let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you again for this night. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these words from Paul that uh, inspired by the spirit that he wrote for us. Um, Lord, do your work in our hearts with these words. Help helps uh, ground us in the truth uh, that we would not fear doing what is right in your eyes. Help us, Lord, to have understanding of your word tonight. We ask your help in that through your spirit, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, now this admonition regarding divisive people should be seen as, as the last in a list of actually been a pretty long list of negative things to watch out for and avoid that, that Paul has been writing about here. Not only that, not only to avoid, but to also handle properly uh, within the church, to have the right attitude about the thing to be avoided, the right biblical attitude about how serious it is to not handle the type of person correctly within the church, this particular type of person. We need to get this point that the person or the, the type of person Paul is describing here is mingling with the church, right? They're, they're in the congregation. They're not just someone you meet out and about downtown. They are not just your coworker, uh, though they could be. Uh, the real problem is that at some point they are in the gatherings. They're in the pews, in the Bible studies, in the small groups, um, and they're usually professing to be Christians themselves, but evidence reveals something different. We need to be aware. And Paul says here that they are someone who stirs up division. Does anyone's translation say something different than stirs up division? There. A, okay, yeah, a divisive person is how he referred to him there. Yes. And the word Paul used here is... Um, Hereticos, okay, which is where we get our word heretic from, okay? The, the King James Version actually did translate this as heretic, but most have used the word division or divisive. Um, the New American Standard Bible calls this a factious person, okay? All of those fit. It's, this is ultimately what a heretic does, is it not? The, a heretic adheres to and teaches uh, that which is heretical or that which is contrary to or at odds with the word of God. How could it not be divisive? Right? In a church full of people who are wanting to adhere to the word of God, how could it not be divisive for a person to depart from that? It, it must be divisive. Um, you know, down at the DMV, they, they've been teaching everyone forever that, that red means stop and green means go. Everybody understands that. This is what lawmakers at some point said is true. Red means stop, green means go. Um, and so if you think about it for a second, think now, uh, let's say a new employee comes down to the DMV and, they, um, and they've read the handbook on how to drive and what the rules of the road are, and, but they've decided that red means go and green means stop, Okay. This is not the orthodox teaching of the DMV. It, it never has been, but they begin teaching it anyway. To all the 16-year-old kids who come in for their test to, to get their license to drive, this person is teaching them that green means stop and red means go. Well, what is going to be the end result of this false teaching? 
crashes. <laughs> Chaos. Right? What, what else? What else can you think of? Tickets. Okay. And everyone would understand, right? I mean, at best, someone will end up, someone will end up causing a traffic jam. At worst, this teaching will lead to their death. Right? This, this one false teaching changes everything. It puts everyone on the road at risk of death. And even those who are, who are following the law correctly are now affected by this false teaching, right? I may believe green is go, red is stop, and follow that, but the guy who's believed that false teaching is coming the other way. And now I'm going to be affected by the fact that he's believing this false teaching. Well, the DMV wouldn't tolerate this employee. Right? They, would, they, were, they would immediately tell that person to stop teaching that way at least, right? Um, if that employee refused to stop, what do you think the DMV would do? They'd fire him, right? You're out. We can't have that, right? Have nothing to do with them in their office. They would want nothing to do with that person in their office. They can no longer claim to be a DMV employee and won't be recognized as such. Why? Well, because of the great danger they pose to people who believe them. They can't have that being taught to new drivers, oral drivers. And the funny thing is that, that everyone would agree with getting rid of that employee. It, everyone would agree that employee shouldn't be there teaching people that thing. It's dangerous, right? But we have the same situation, in fact, much worse uh, with the teaching of heresy. People think it's no big deal in the church. Uh, in fact, you, you call someone out for heresy, you're, you, you are the one who's intolerant, dogmatic, or arrogant. Never mind, people are going to hell because of false teaching, right? The reason people tolerate it is because, I think, because we don't really believe in hell. People that are willing to tolerate it don't really believe in hell or how bad it is. They might say they do, but ultimately, how can you if you're willing to tolerate something that's leading people there? At least, uh, we don't believe we deserve to go there. That's for bad people, right? Hell's for, for bad people. Um, we just don't think sin is that big of a deal. That's, that's part of the problem. We just don't think we, we can really believe what the Bible says. Nobody is wrong in what they teach. That's kind of what the world is saying today, and even that's creeping into the church. We have this kind of um, belief that everyone's right because we don't want to confront what is wrong. And Paul's saying something different here in our text. And this person is divisive. They are factious. In other words, they are talking people into believing their lies and dividing believers against one another with false words. And not only against one another, but against the Lord. Right? So he gives permission here to give them a couple of chances to change. And he says, after warning him once and then twice, well, first of all, that implies that you have tried to correct the person, right? You're warning them. You've tried to correct them. You tell them where and how they're wrong, and you call on them to repent and to stop teaching what is false. That's, that's the implication. And it's not a debate, right? It's not an opportunity to let them speak their minds. You're telling them they're wrong. You're warning them. Well, what do you think would be included in that warning? You're warning someone about being divisive. What do you think is included in that warning? 
but should be included in that. Okay, it, it could be, I mean, depending on what they're, right, it could be a believer who's been deceived themselves and they need to be corrected. So I don't know if we can initially say that, but ultimately it could prove to be that. Yeah. What else? Thinking about the danger they pose. Think about the DMV situation. What else could be involved in a warning? Well, first of all, stop doing it because you're deceiving people, right? Okay, yeah, you're, you're not only deceiving other people, you're deceiving yourself. Um, you tell them stop. Also, you're not listening to the word of God. You're rebelling against it. Okay, these are all warnings. It could be all a part of what you're saying to this person. And stop, and this goes to Rosie's point, you're in danger of proving to not be a Christian if you continue in this. If you can continue in that without repentance, you're in danger of hell. Because ultimately, ultimately, you would prove to not be a Christian if you don't listen to the word of God and, and correction. Again, the implication then in verse 10 is that the person doesn't listen to the warnings. Okay, so Paul tells Titus what to do at that point, and it's very clear. Okay, it's very hard, but it's very clear. Look at verse 10 again with me. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Okay, again, so the implication is you've warned them twice now, and they haven't listened. So the third step is have nothing more to do with him. Okay, have nothing more to do with him. What does Paul mean by this? Well, it's pretty plain, right, uh, that the outcome of this is severe. Okay, it is severe action because, remember, the offense is deadly, is it not? It's not just a little thing. Um, the word Paul uses here is also translated as reject or refuse. Okay? Um, reject this person, he says. Have nothing to do with them any longer. That sounds very harsh, does it not? I mean, we're not used to doing that kind of thing. But that's what he says. So why should we or why can we treat this person this way? Um, because it sounds so harsh. It sounds like an overreaction to many people's ears that you would warn somebody a couple times about what they're teaching and if they don't listen, then you're going to have nothing more to do with them. Sounds like an overreaction. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. They should be ashamed. That's the point. God wants them to be ashamed. Shame serves a purpose in our lives. What purpose would that be? What purpose should shame have in our lives? If you could put that in one brief sentence, what purpose should shame have in our lives? Introspection, okay. And what was that? Teach you a lesson, okay. Anything else on that? Any other thoughts? It's kind of hard. We live in a world that seems to have no shame these days. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, shame serves a purpose, and it serves a purpose of correcting sinful behavior. When we 
ideally, when we sin and we feel shame, we turn from that sin, right? We want to repent, turn to God, turn away from that because of the shame of it. Kind of like a timeout, sure. Yeah, it's, it's a form of discipline. That's what it's intended to be. But when you live in a culture that no longer has shame over anything, boy, it's really hard to correct people, isn't it? Because anything goes now. Um, what is the danger? See, we're told here to refuse this person or have nothing to do with this person. What is the danger in not refusing this person? What is the danger if we continue to have fellowship with this person? Okay, spreading the, spreading the poison, sure. What else? They'll, it'll continue to corrupt people? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, if we refuse to follow the scripture and have nothing to do with this person or reject this person, well, they certainly won't feel the shame that God intended them to feel so that they would repent because it's like nothing's happened. Right? If we just continue with life like everything's okay, they're left to think it's okay. Sure, yeah, a revolving, revolving door of crime. Yeah, we see that all the time. Right? They'll, the other danger is that they'll continue to deceive others. Um, they will cause others to disobey God. Um, and the Bible tells us when, when people swerve from the truth, they make what of their faith? shipwreck make shipwreck of their faith and turn with me if you would to Romans chapter 16 Romans chapter 16 it's the last chapter in the book of Romans and we'll look at verses 17 through 19 and Paul gives the same warning here to the Romans and an additional bit of language that makes the danger clear or another aspect of the danger clear so Romans 16, verses 17 through 19, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Okay, those who are, he talks about those who are naive. Those who are naive or unsuspecting or maybe less spiritually mature. They're easy targets, right? Um, they're more likely to fall for the smooth talk and the flattery the flattering words that come from the false teacher. And these are words that ultimately do what? They appeal to human desire, right? It is our most vulnerable place. It is the chink in the armor for human beings. I want what is appealing to me and what makes me happy at the expense of others and contrary to the Bible. And if that's what someone's offering, boy, we gravitate to that because I want it. No, absolutely not. That's why many false teachers, probably all, all false teachers, don't talk about sin. They talk about what appeals to man, which is you know, wealth and health and all these things. Everything everybody wants, um, but it's not what we truly need. 
So back to our text. We are to have nothing to do with the divisive person. Why? Well, we know something about them now. Okay, Paul's point here is that a Christian would listen to the warnings. They may not initially listen, but a true Christian will come around and agree. Uh, there is also a presumption here that the warning is based on something, right? As this person is teaching something false or they're a divisive person within the church, you're warning them once and twice, um, and that warning has to be based on something. If we're warning someone about the heresy they're spreading or the divisive things they're doing, what are we doing to prove that? I'm warning them about it. I can see it in them. What am I doing to prove that to them? There you go. The scriptures, the Bible, yeah? The word of God. Uh, the, the warning has, has to be based on scripture. It's not just, in my opinion, you're this or that. Or in my opinion, you're divisive. No, we can open up the Bible and show them where they're divisive. Showing them their fault from the Bible. So the presumption is that the warning is based on Scripture, not opinion. Okay? The Bible is, uh, we have to remember, is the source of truth that we use to show where a person is wrong. We must remember that our authority for the warning is the Word of God. Um, and that is also where we find explanation for what the desired outcome is. There is a desired outcome of warning people who profess to be believers. And Matthew 18 tells us the desired outcome is to win our brother. Right? When, we, when we go to them with their faults, if they listen, he says, we've won our brother. That is a desired outcome. Other passages tell us if, if winning the brother is not possible because they are not really a brother, then the desired outcome is to purge that evil person from the church. Okay, Let's look at an example of this in 2 Timothy. Okay, right before Titus, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's not necessarily about physically keeping them from coming into the church. It's about they, are, they cannot be a member anymore. They can't claim to be a member. And you would make it clear to the rest of the members they are not a member. So that's what it's talking about because you can't, I mean, unless there was some level of violence and they were, and you knew there was a danger in them coming, there would be violence, then you'd have to take legal action to keep them from the building, maybe. But in, in terms here, you're no longer treating them as a believer because they've proven otherwise. Okay. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26. says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Sound familiar? Paul just wrote about that in Titus. Verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Okay, difference here, not tolerating evil, patiently enduring evil. 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay, what is the desired outcome in there? Restoration, yeah, that the person will come to their senses. Uh, and again, what we see there too is that 
Paul's making clear to Timothy, we need God for this. My, my words aren't going to convince somebody. The word of God can. The Holy Spirit can. And that's why he says um, in, that, in that passage there um, that perhaps God may perhaps grant them repentance. He's acknowledging if there's going to be repentance, that comes from God convicting that person. God granting them repentance. Uh, God's the only one that can open up uh, a rebellious sinner's eyes to see their sin and need for correction. So we, we see here that that is, it's a wonderful goal, is it not? It's not just about being mean to a person. The goal is restoration. If this person is a believer, then the goal and the warning is to restore them, show them their error so they can repent and come back to right relationship. If they're not a believer, then the goal is still a, a, a wonderful goal, which is they need the gospel. They need to come to faith in Christ, but I, we can't pretend they are a part of the fellowship, right? So it's a, it's a negative action for a positive result. Have nothing to do with them. That's pretty negative, but it's for a positive result. Um, it, it's the same concept as the mom who spanks her child for sinning in some way and says, I'm doing this because I love you. Well, the kid thinks, what? <laughs> this is love? You're spanking me. <laughs> yes, it is love. And by God's grace, any of us that have been disciplined maybe can look back and see that and realize that, that it was painful at the time but, and embarrassing maybe, but the result was good. I needed to be taught that lesson. I needed to be warned and shown a better way or the right way. So the fact that this person has continued the behavior after being warned proves something. It proves that something is true of them no matter what they claim, that they quite possibly are not a Christian at all, and they were never a Christian. Right? So we should make no mistake. To, to not listen to the word of God is sin for us. Right? To, to not listen is sin. And to do so without heeding the warnings of other Christians could ultimately be proof you're not a Christian at all. You are at least temporarily, you're, you're at least a temporarily rebellious Christian who, and at worst, an unbeliever still in their sins. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So we should notice the force of those words. We should notice that the stated impossibility for a true Christian to go on sinning in unrepentance for very long. I mean, we'll do it sometimes. It, sometimes it takes a while because we're thick-headed. But ultimately, the Christian cannot keep on sinning because they're a new creature. They're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He will get our attention. That's right. And he uses his word. He uses other believers with his word. He uses the preaching of the word, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, um, all those things to, to reach us. He pursues us. If you are a child of God, he will discipline you. But it's because he loves you. He won't let you go. So the believer cannot keep on sinning. Look how Paul phrases it in the last part of 
verse 11, where he tells us what we can know about this person who, who doesn't listen to the biblical warnings. In verse 11, at the end, says, Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Okay, we can conclude that they are warped. Some translations might say perverted. Maybe yours says that. Um, the word Paul uses here is uh, extrepho, which means to turn or twist out or, or inside out. Okay? And this is what they are, and it's what they're doing. It is a perversion or a twisting of the truth, and it is dividing God's people. And this is unacceptable, and Paul tells Titus, it is sinful for that person to be divisive. The other point Paul makes here about this person is that he is self-condemned. And what does that mean? Christians who are abiding in the word of God will know the truth, They will recognize this person is not teaching or believing the truth. They warn that person according to the word of God. And when the person doesn't listen, the fact that they are continuing to propagate lies in opposition to the word of God and live according to those lies does not require us to condemn them. The point is, they are condemning themselves by their own teachings and by their own actions. We may be pointing it out from Scripture. They might might even accuse believers who are confronting them. um, They might accuse those believers of condemning them. But the truth is they are condemning themselves by what they say and what they do, according to Scripture, not just according to the Christian who's trying to warn them. Um, So Paul's pointing pointing this out and saying that the refusal to heed biblical warnings is self-condemning. In other words, they prove they are guilty of the sin being pointed out to them. And these aren't even some of the harshest words about the topic of how to deal with professing Christians in unrepentant sin. When Paul was confronting the sexual immorality of a professing Christian to the Corinthian church, he said this in 1 Corinthians 5.11, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay, it seems like he's added another level on here. Okay? First, this is not only for someone who's in sexual immorality, but for other unrepentant sin as well. What is the problem here? The problem is they say they're a Christian. They are in the fellowship of believers, they're coming, they're a part of everything going on, they're continuing to fellowship with them as if there's no sin, as if everything's okay. So why does Paul say not even to eat with such a one? What, is, what does eating have to do with anything? What do you think? Okay, it's fellowship. Right. Sharing meals together back then, back in, in first century, uh, was a definite sign of acceptance and of the common fellowship of groups of people, okay, even outside of Christianity. You're sharing a meal, you're fellowshipping with these people. The implication is you're of one mind, you're united, right? So to continue in this practice with this person is to be approving of and tolerating sin. It sends the wrong message, in other words. What is the right message to be sent then? If you're going to not even eat with such a one, 
what is the right message? What is the message, the target message here? Okay, you're definitely avoiding them. You're doing what the scripture says, but there's a message in that avoidance. Okay, that they're wrong. Right? To, to the person, let's say to the person who's being avoided, uh, or, or you're not eating with this person, you're saying you're not one of us and we cannot pretend you are. And that's an oversimplification, but that's the gist, general gist of it. So to that person, that's the message you're sending. To the world, you're saying he's not one of us and we're not pretending he is. Right? So because so he'll be out in the world saying, I'm one of them, I'm one of them. And we'll be saying, no, he is not one of us. We don't want to be associated with, with that. We don't want to be tolerating of sin or heresy. So, so the goal here is really twofold, right? To bring about restoration of an erring true believer. They're erring yet unrepentant, but we want to bring about restoration. That's the, that's the first of the twofold goal, right? The second is to protect the holiness of the church, which Jesus shed his blood for. That's the second goal in all of this. And these are very important things and Paul needed to say to Titus before he closed out this letter. And you think he's writing this letter and sending it off. How is he ending it? What are the really important things you want to say before you close out a letter? And this is what he chose to talk about. is false teachers and divisive people in the church. Okay, these, these things, not other things, needed to be said. And then Paul could move on to some final instructions in verses 12 through 15. Um, these final words are not doctrinal or related to the church per se, with the exception of verse 14. So let's look at those last verses there, Titus 3, 12 through 15, as Paul wraps up the letter. Verse 12, When I send Artemis, or Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Okay, so we see that Paul here wants to give Titus a bit of a timeline and instructions for where and when he wants him in the future. Okay, verse 12, he says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So at a particular time, which Paul doesn't specify here, he will send at least one of these two guys, Artemis or Tychicus, to go to Titus. Um, and that's Titus's cue then, hopefully, to leave and come to where Paul is. And he also doesn't say what the purpose in sending one of these guys is. He doesn't say, when I send one of these guys to do X, Y, or Z, he just says, when I send them. Okay? But I think we can assume it would be to replace Titus, who Paul is asking to come to where he's at. So this person he sends is going to go to the island of Crete and replace Titus so that he can move on, so that Titus can move on to where Paul needs him. Um, so that would be the point there. Um, 
of saying this so that Titus could follow the next instruction from Paul, which was to go where Paul would be. And he told him where he was going to be. And we don't know anything about Artemis. He mentions two guys here in this. Artemis we don't know much about, but Tychicus is familiar since he's Paul's messenger to the church at Colossae. Um, He's referred to in Scripture, among other things, as our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. To say Paul would entrust anyone to replace Titus on Crete, who was not a faithful servant of the Lord, sound in doctrine and love for the brothers, would be to know nothing about Paul. He would not send someone to replace Titus, who is inferior to Titus, or or unable to to meet the qualifications of an elder. He absolutely would not send somebody that didn't meet that. So though we don't, we know some about Tychicus from other parts of Scripture and and his faithfulness, and uh, um, we don't have anything more about Artemis, but we can assume that Artemis himself would meet Paul's standard, which is the biblical standard for um, an elder. And Paul said he's going to spend the winter in Nicopolis, and this was most likely on the western edge of Greece, on a peninsula to the west of the Bay of Actium. And if you're looking at a map, it would be sort of right across from the right across the Ionian Sea from the bottom of the boot of Italy. Okay, so if you were looking at that boot, you know, you go right across and hit Greece, it'd be right about in that area there. Um, and that's where Paul said he had decided to spend the winter and where he wanted Titus to come and meet him. He said, do your best to come to me. Paul really wants him to come. And the second thing he wanted him to do, and he even said to do his best at, uh, was to, or to accomplish was in verse 13. It says, do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing. In other words, make haste. I think of that because Charity likes to watch... Uh, was that movie with uh, Pride and Prejudice? And the guy is always telling people, he's this kind of antsy guy. He's always telling people, hurrying people, and saying, make haste, make haste. It's the only place I ever hear those words, but that came to my mind for some reason because I have to watch that movie all the time. <laughs> so he's saying, hurry them up, right? Apparently, Paul needed those two men for something, though he doesn't say what, okay? Whatever it was, Paul wanted them there as quickly as possible and instructed Titus to make sure they had everything they needed for their journey. Not only make this possible for them, provide them for whatever they need. Okay? He says, see that they lack nothing. And as with Artemis before, we don't know anything about Zenus beyond this passage of Scripture. It's all we have. He's a lawyer. Okay, He's a lawyer. Apollos, on the other hand, is someone we know about. What do, you, what do you know about Apollos? What do we know about Apollos from Scripture? Can you think of anything? Okay, he's a preacher. Yeah. Yeah, went to Ephesus. He's a faithful preacher of the Word. And the first mention, start turning to Acts 18 with me, if you would. The first mention of Apollos in the Bible he- is here in Acts 18. And <coughs> look at verses 24 through 28. Um, and we have quite a bit about him in this section of Scripture. And probably, I would say, probably the main reasons Paul found him to be essential in ministry, you can see in this Acts 18 passage here, verses 24 through 28. 
Let's look at that. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he gre- greatly helped those who through, the grace, through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by, script- by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is a man faithful to the scriptures. He had to be corrected by Priscilla and Aquila. He was, he was missing something, but even before that, he, was, he wasn't teaching heresy. He was, he was teaching what he knew, and they helped him, gave him a more thorough information about the word of God. But he continued in that, a powerful preacher. Um, and that's our first introduction to Apollos, and you can see from that, he preached the word of God boldly. Um, he was very valuable to the brethren in the first century church and traveled around bringing the gospel with him. He's even one named by Paul when, when Paul rebuked the church at Corinth for fighting about who they were followers of, you remember? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And Apollos is one of those in there. He was a very influential person. Um, and, and so Paul is rebuking them for saying those things instead of being followers of Christ. And there are many other mentions of Apollos in the New, T- New Testament. He's always found to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is instructing Titus to do here is we can look at really as such a good example of how the church is to work with and support one another in the business of meeting the needs of other believers. Be it food or money or company or caring for those in sickness and hardship or to assist in the proclamation of the gospel. We can see it in action here and we still do these things today. Right? We send people, we support people, we, we want people to come, we want people to go who can uh, spread the gospel. We're st- the church is still doing these things today and that's what we see going on here. And Paul takes this opportunity to point Titus back to what he had already told him about Christians doing good works. Remember, he's mentioned good works a lot through this letter. It seems he's not just repeating, he's not just repeating this, what he says about good works here for the sake of repetition. It seems to me uh, that he is uh, just saying, basically, Titus, here is a good opportunity to get the people in the churches to be involved in making this happen, which is a good work. Look at what he says in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I think Paul is saying this case of getting Zenos and Apollos to him quickly is a matter of urgency. And the church needs to be the ones making this happen. Speed them on their way. Make this happen. Make sure they're lacking nothing. So he's calling on the church to help Members of the church go to other members of the church, and, and he says this is, being, this is doing good works, and this is being fruitful, not unfruitful. Okay, make sure they lack nothing on their journey. 
And then we get to Paul's last words. Really a word of blessing. Not only toward Titus, but to everyone in the churches on Crete. In verse 15, he says, All who are with me, Paul, Paul saying this, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. As you can see how they all, on both sides, are benefiting from one another. Okay, even those with Paul who see his letter and they know it's going to Titus and, and the work that Titus is doing on Crete and that Paul is calling him to do on Crete. Everyone is blessed by knowing what Paul has written and, and they all look forward to meeting again. And they greet each other here. They know there's a common bond of love between them and between them all because of Christ. And Paul specifically ties the love he speaks of as being in the faith. Okay, he's talking about other Christians, those who love them in the faith. He's talking about other believers. Um, so it's just another way of saying those who are in Christ. And they are in Christ only by faith, you see. So he says those who are in the faith. So when he says, grace be with you all, what is he asking for? What is Paul asking for when he says, grace be with you all? What do you think? There you go. Yeah, God's grace. Okay, he's, he's recognizing that all Christians need the grace of God on a daily basis. And this is a way of asking God to be gracious towards them all. Okay, that's what's going on there. Again, this is an act of love on Paul's part toward those he loves in the faith. It's been a heavy letter at times a very and very direct um, and a lot of instruction for what Titus is supposed to do, what, how he's supposed to be appointing elders in all the churches and what those elders should be like to other Christians and what they should be like, how they should be treating one another, how they should be treating unbelievers, um, heavy topics about avoiding false teachers, etc. A lot of really hard things, a lot of difficult but necessary subjects that Paul has had to address in this letter. And now he leaves no doubt, though, this, this letter is ending on a good note. It's ending on a positive, right? And he leaves no doubt about the love between believers and even when we need to hear difficult things. And that's been sort of the flow of this letter. Uh, a lot of instruction, a lot of encouragement to do good works. I think he says some form of doing good works six or seven times through this three chapters. Uh, it was very important for Christians to be living like Christians. We need each other. Paul needed these guys he's asking for, and he needed Titus. Do your best to come to me. So we are done with the book of Titus. So I appreciate everyone coming and sticking it out with us. And uh, From this point, uh, what we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to take a break on Wednesday nights uh, for the summer, um, and we'll come back at some point, probably around the time when Team Kid starts up again. But we'll have something new that we'll be going through at that time. And so I hope you guys will come back and join us. And we'll try to push it or promote it before we get started back up again. But uh, I hope you guys have learned a lot of neat things going through the book of Titus. I have. All right, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for uh, this night. Thank you for your word and for the letter that Paul wrote to Titus uh, that we can learn so much from that 
is not just for those people who live there at that time, but very clear and relevant instruction for us as believers today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be vigilant, to be looking out for what is false, that we would not be fooled by it. Help us, Lord, in our lives with other believers, whether it be at church or in conversations with them outside of the Sunday gathering, Lord, that we would be faithful to encourage one another in the Lord, that we would be faithful to point out error, departures from the Scripture, not in a mean, abrasive way, but as we see in Scripture, with kindness, with love, with a goal of repentance and restoration. And Lord, help us also if, if and when the time comes, to be willing to do the hard thing and have nothing to do with them. And may it be for your glory, for, your, for the reputation of your church, because you are holy. I pray you would give us strength and courage, give us love and compassion for other people. Help us, Lord, if we're the one who's erring, to be responsive to the correction of another believer that we would listen the first time and not go through the pain of going farther down the road. And thank you, Lord, that you pursue us. Thank you, Lord, that as Christians, our sins are forgiven. We're so grateful for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.